Welcome to Blammo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. Now, we're hard at work on season four, but this week is a special bonus episode with the one and only John Caramonica. John is the pop music critic for the New York Times and one of my favorite journalists ever. From Eminem to Taylor Swift, John has written about, interviewed, and in some cases, even been the first of the industry to break. He's the guy who writes like it's a hot take, but knows so much and is such an expert on his subject, it's actually not. To top it all off, he loves clothes as much as me and makes up half of the New York Times critical shopper column. We talk about music, fashion, and the contrast in their businesses. Look, we talk about everything. We go all over the place on this one, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. John Caramonica, the OG, the god. Uh, I would argue that you're- There's two gods on these mics, I'll tell you that. You're the white whale. You are my white whale. It's, you know, and and do you want to tell the people what's in between us right now? Do you want to tell tell the people about this? Uh, I don't want to butcher the pronunciation, but I believe You've been to France. (laughs) It's La Dore. La Dore. Oh, see, you had the better. I did did get a five in AP French. Yeah. So you took French. I did. Yeah. I did. Um, So, uh, Jeremy- uh, has been. I feel like we're now. I'm not talking. I'm talking to the people. Yeah, you talk to, to the people. I'm talking to the people. Jeremy has been emailing me for a long time, and uh, I have been rudely uh, punting and punting and punting. And I know that in order to make this right, I had to come with with a hot twelve pack <laughs> of of macaron. Yeah. So you know we're not about, macaroons. No, no. So we're about six down, and I hope that we're twelve. <laughs> I hope we're twelve macaron we, down. We will be by the we will by be. the end of this. Um. We'll have to strike and reverse the fact that you weren't rude. Because, like, here's the thing. Sure. And I will be, I guess I can probably say this on it. It doesn't matter. This will come out later. But, like, right before we were getting ready to start recording, he had just submitted an article. And, like, he's getting edit notes. It's and what we his do. phone's buzzing. And it's he's what like. We do. That's what my life's like. It's that journalistic integrity, man. I mean, it's, it's funny because. I kind of worry about that. Well, I try, <laughs> I try to schedule plans. This is, this is maybe a useful double for anyone who's ever tried to make a plan with me okay if they're listening <laughs> if they're listening now they know it's not their fault it's my fault okay because i have days that seem totally open like today seemed totally open and i was like oh i'm gonna have so many hours to just like not just do an interview with jeremy but also just like meditate before the like think so hard and have so much energy free free loose energy to oh, devote okay. and then instead i was up till three in the morning reading old rap history books about the 1970s to make sure that i didn't fuck up my love bug starsky obituary which i would have been editing up until eight minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> so that's what my life was like so if i ever canceled lunch on you that's what happened there you go sorry that's fine um but thank you so much for coming on. It's honestly such a pleasure. This is awesome. Uh, now, you're a person, a journalist, who I would say probably doesn't, at least because you don't have the opportunity, you're mm-hmm. never really revealing too much about yourself. No. I, don't, I try not to. I feel like... There's never... I, I rarely see the selfie. No. Yeah. No. It's not my... Uh, d- That's not I, your thing. I gotta be honest. Like You look good when you, post, when you post pictures of yourself uh-huh. on your social media. I'm just one of those people that every time I see a photo of myself, I just agonize over it. I also just feel like sometimes when I'm following people and all they do is post photos of themselves. Yeah. That's not a vibe that I can support or access. I've muted a lot of people on Instagram. Sure. <laughs> totally, totally reasonable. <laughs> and so I just, I feel like the right solution is just, just to not. Yeah. I, I also like, 
people know what I look like. You can Google image search me. It's not like there's no photos of me on the internet, but I'm not trying to like draw attention to it. And you also host the the podcast. The podcast. I host the podcast. Excuse me, which is freaking flawless. I hope. I hope. I hope it brings happiness. I get. We get a lot of emails, which makes me happy because I know like. Well, what are those emails like? I get emails too, and sometimes they're like, "You're an asshole." Oh, I definitely get those. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to pretend I don't get those. Um, mostly, I get a lot of a lot of emails that are. I thought I was the only person who thought about records like this or who wanted to have that kind of conversation about music right like basically like i live in dubuque or stad no yeah. no one from stad <laughs> you know but like i live in like some weird town in finland and like none of my friends like music and like you guys like music and yeah. that like makes me happy and that that brings me a lot of joy that somewhere somewhere someone someone somewhere in the world feels that way about a thing that i put into the world because that's you gotta understand, like when I fought, when I first started writing, I was writing for magazines that were read by like three thousand people two months after I emailed in a piece of copy. Right. Like there's no social media, there's no instant feedback loop, there's no sense that the work is important the minute it leaves your computer. None of that. So to have this kind of an instantaneous relationship with people is actually really gratifying after like many, many years of being racked by self-doubt and anxiety. <laughs> That's fascinating, actually. I never really thought of that. Because, yeah, I mean, if you were writing for, you know, the traditional publications, mm -hmm. yeah, you submitted that stuff ages ago. I mean, so, like, my first, my first pieces were 12-inch uh, single reviews for Herb Magazine, which does not exist anymore, in 1996. And this is literally how those things used to happen. This guy, Oliver, who became a friend of mine, but at the time was just a guy I knew from hip-hop message boards og hip-hop mess like not current like kanye to the this is like <laughs> og news groups yeah oliver would send an email and ask me do you want to review here's like 10 12 inch singles that are coming out do you want to review any of these and then because i did not have a turntable in my college dorm room he would dub the single onto a cassette and mail me the cassette Oh, yeah, because I was about to ask if you had these. I didn't have, I, we had, I mean, I was at the radio, I also DJed at the radio station, so a lot of times we would have the singles, but if it was something that we did not have, it was faster for him to just dub me a copy and drop it in the mail. And so then I would listen to that cassette ad nauseum, spend an entire night agonizing over a 150-word review and email it to him, and then it would appear in an issue of her magazine two to three months later. Wow. That's for no money. <laughs> Maybe no $5. Money. See, we're really going to give you this exposure. Here. This is, this is, you kids are, you stressed about your blogs. <laughs> you stressed about, this, this was a lot grimier in yeah. the mid 90s. <laughs> well, let's jump back real quick. Yeah. So, where are you originally from? You're a New England guy? No, I'm from Brooklyn. What? Yeah. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. Why I'm, did I not know this? Yeah. I thought you're from Boston. No, God, no. Good Lord. Well, you could have, I'm well. surprised. And you still like me? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Shouts to everyone I've ever loved from Boston. Um, um, no, I'm from Sheepshead Bay, which is outer Brooklyn. I'm very familiar with Sheepshead. Yeah, so I'm from Sheepshead Bay. That's wild. And then I lived there uh, until high school, and then I lived in Mill Basin, which is another neighborhood in outer Brooklyn, like yep. closer to the Queens border on the far side. Like actual Brooklyn, not yeah. oh yeah, no, not actual, stroller Brooklyn. No, 100% actual Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Cambridge for college. Flex. Like, I went to Harvard. I'm not one of those people that's like, I went to college in Boston. 
That no. that to me is well, not a thing. Here's like, just fucking say it. Just fucking say it. And I'm not like, I'm like, <laughs> I would hope, well, I would hope that I'm like the least Harvard person who went to Harvard. I would hope. Yeah. But I'm not going to be like, I went to college in Boston. Yeah. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. Don't do that. Don't well, do that. Own your, own your fucking story. That's true. Even if it's good or bad, just own it. Well, just be like, I went to Harvard, but. In your case, it's good. It's mostly good, I hope. I mean, I had did a very you, good time. Did you there. go through like Brooklyn Tech and stuff like that first? I went to Stuyvesant. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty damn good school. Yeah. I mean, but I was like, did you know you're going to go to Harvard before you went to Harvard, per se? Like, young. If you ask my mom, like when I was like nine years old, yes. But like when I was in high school, I never felt like I was like the number one kid at my high school. Were you the number one kid? No. I was not. I was not like the number three hundred kid, but I was not the number one kid. Right. Um, shouts to Guy Maytal, who was the valedictorian of my <laughs> high school class, who also went to Harvard. Uh, no, I. Um, it's very humbling going to school around so many smart people. Sure. Like super humbling. Iron sharpens iron. It does, though. Yeah, I but agree. I, but but you also learn your limitations, and I remember like being around kids. Like I actually thought I was going to be like a math professor or in economics or something like so that. you're gonna go to academia that's what i thought really because that's what i was good at when i was in high school i mean i was basically like a kid who was on the math team but who also listened to big daddy kane <laughs> so was, hip-hop was oh so this is always. at the beginning oh this is always i mean like you know like the first tapes that i ever bought were run dmc tapes like this has always been my thing but i didn't grow up around a bunch of other people who also were into it right so I just always assumed I'd be like a teacher who liked rap music. Like okay. That's why I just, you know, no one in my family is a writer. No one in my family is like an artist. What, what do your parents do? Are uh, they still my dad, around? Yes. Uh, my dad fixed cars. Respect. Uh, my mom had me at 19 and later yep. like sold real estate. But, All right. But, no, you know, no one, you know, I don't come from like a creative background. Siblings? No, just me. Just, just yeah. John? Yeah, just me. So, you know... I just assumed you could like art or music or theater or whatever, but it was like a thing that you did in addition to having a job. Mm. That's why I was not, not have a job. I didn't, it didn't even occur. Like I would literally read the source or vibe and I would just be like, Oh, it's just so crazy. that Like all these people who are like music, like get to just do this. They must all have other jobs. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the way it is now. Maybe (laughs) it is. It turned into that, but it never occurred to me that that was their actual job. Yeah. It took many years for me to figure that out. So you go to Harvard. Yeah. What were you studying? Um, when I started, I thought I was going to be an applied math economics major. That's what I thought. Damn. So like my freshman year, I took differential equations and, you know, statistics with calculus, like all, all that shit. And, um, I was good, but I looked around and I saw like the two or three kids who were like, oh shit. Like these kids like see it like the fucking matrix. And I don't see it like, the like that's, I can do it, but I don't see it like that. Right. And I, I started to realize like, oh, maybe I don't have to do this. And then there was a, a major called social studies, which was like interdisciplinary social sciences. It was like economics, history, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cultural studies, uh, psychology, just a little bit of everything. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I could probably go into that and kind of figure it out along the way. So I chose that. And then that was kind of in the 
somewhere between the 1.0 and 2.0 of cultural studies in the academy. Right. And I was like, oh, I want to write about rap music because that's what I liked. And, I was, and they were like, that's crazy. No one's done that. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just do it. And so I wrote a thesis on rap music. Uh, the only other person at Harvard who had done a thesis on rap music before me was Joshua Redman, who is a jazz musician now. Okay. I think he was a few years before me. Uh, also, I think in the social studies program. I did that. I went to grad school for a couple of years after that. I was going to do a PhD. It was also in rap music. Holy shit. I basically burned out. I was in London. I basically burned out. I dropped out. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to be in school. Yeah. At a certain point, I was like, why am I in school? Like, literally, why am I in school? <laughs> and I lucked out because my advisor, he was like a very well-known and well-regarded academic. But when he was in his 20s, he wrote for The Face. Yeah. And he lived in New York writing about rap in the 80s for The Face and other British publications. So he was just like, go home, dude. He was like, just go home. So you want to come back to school? I'll just call me and like, we'll figure it out. But he was just like, just go fucking home and go deal with that. So I was like, okay. So I like came back to New York and got like a web 1.0 job and like started freelancing for magazines. And like, here we are. Holy shit. Yeah. I got lucky. I got yeah. Very lucky. But still, I, I think one of the, so what, what, the first thing you were writing for, or the first magazine you were writing for? Herb was the first thing I was writing yeah. for regularly. I was still in college. That was 96, 90. I graduated in 97. So that was 96, 97. First interview was for a magazine that does not exist anymore called Elementary, which only had two or three oh, issues. Good magazine name. Someone should buy that. Bring it back. True story. Uh, <laughs> I interviewed, this is just to let you know, like, what the era was like. I interviewed Raskas about poetry. Okay. That was my first artist interview. Because um, when you were doing this, this is when there was a lot of spotlight on rap music specifically because of how, you know, negative it was. And that was, quote, gangster, quote, rap. You know, like... Certainly, like, the, the prevailing media narratives about rap music were not positive at yeah. that time. I always knew on a gut level that that was wrong because of my personal affinity and my sort of, like, aesthetic appreciation. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I understood my work as being like a corrective until a little bit later down the line. But I think the more I became comfortable with my writing, the more I realized that part of what I was trying to do was steer the ship of the narrative and just like take it away from the bullshit narrative and yeah. direct it where I thought it should be. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, I don't know if many writers realize this, but as you're a writer, that's the point. You it can, is the point. Yeah. You can control the entire narrative yeah. and make your you know, make your case for whatever it is that you're writing about. So, I mean, I think I first heard about you when you were at Fader, I think, right? I was never full-time at Fader, but I wrote um, Fader cover stories. I did the Fader... Which is, which is good enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I did D'Angelo and Beck. I did Eminem. Uh, those are, you know, Fader number five and six or four and five. Like, right. it's very early Fader. And I mean, I didn't, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, you know, they were just like, we're going to interview Eminem for the cover. And I was like, you know, it's like, you could have told me I, I had to like literally solve Middle Eastern peace. I, would, I was like about as qualified to do that. Um, but I just figured it out. Like, it's just one of those things where you get in a room with somebody, you kind of understand what makes them tick, and you just get them to talk and hope they don't shut up. Yeah. And I, I, I think I was good at that early. I think I was good at getting people to talk who wouldn't ordinarily talk or didn't necessarily have like a legacy of talking. Well, I mean, someone like Eminem, 
he's quite the chatterbox on the song, but yeah, but not in, person, in real life. Not, not really his thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just kind of figured it out, and the fader was because it was so new. There wasn't like some sense of like I'm really glad it wasn't for a place like the Times because yeah. there would have been so many more rules and so many more things I had to be cognizant of, but. There, I didn't. I, I was basically allowed to either succeed or fail on my own terms, yeah, without too much stress from like, oh, you didn't do it in like the proper fashion, right? And I sort of taught myself on the fly how to become a, a journalist. That's fascinating. I mean, I think you know, and this is some of the stuff we were talking about off mic before we mm-hmm. started. Like, I've kind of always associated you a little bit also as like this Cameron Crow type person mm-hmm. because hair. <laughs> Maybe my hair's hair. short now. I did just get a cut, but like generally, it's you long. had the hair, it's but a... the the camaraderie with with the musicians, and this but is see, that's okay. But then tell me why you think that, and I'm gonna tell you why it's wrong. Okay, so they, this is, and obviously, please correct me. Yeah, yeah speak. Um, you get name checked occasionally. Obviously, you're also you know people follow you on the gram. Sure, that's true. Drake doesn't follow me. He may, maybe he's unfollowed me recently. I don't know. I don't check. That's fine. But like, sure. And, and basically, you know, and from other stuff when you had talked about when you, uh, you know, hanging out with Kanye, I I don't know. I I guess like for me, you know, as I'm trying to make my case, obviously Mm -hmm. I'm fumbling over my words, but the, the truth of the matter is for some reason, this, you know, this guy from Sheepshead Bay Seriously, from somehow, Sheepshead Bay. Somehow, Can you fucking believe it. From <laughs> from from right around the corner from the Carvel on Coney Island Avenue and Avenue Y. Yeah, who knew? Is somehow dismantling and getting these rappers to open up from ASAP Rocky to Kanye to Eminem. I mean, and and that's just a very rare thing. And I think the last person that people really know who had that sort of connection. This is back when, yeah, you had Cameron mm-hmm. Crowe because he's hanging out with Led Zeppelin on right. on the jet. I mean. I- a couple things. The era of Cameron Crowe was obviously a far less regulated era, right? That's true. The importance of the publicists and people controlling their own narratives, that's a very different thing. You know, that guy could go on the road with a band for a week and no one would be like, hey, maybe you don't write about the cocaine and the this and the that. <laughs> that kind of unfettered access is not really what we have now. So I think I'm dealing with a different my access problems are, I have, I have more access problems. So I think what I've become good at is, number one, negotiating the access. Because right. you can't just, like, show up. Yeah. There's always layers before that. So negotiating the access, being fair, but also knowing what the fuck I'm talking about when I'm in the room. That's right. Because when you're trying to interview someone who's notoriously fickle, the minute they smell bullshit on you, or they smell on something that they choose not to trust which is you don't know their work well or you don't understand the scene that well or the minute that happens it's gone yeah it's gone and so i think i've been good at being in the room with people who are looking to smell that and don't smell it on me right i think i hope well i I don't want to jinx it is it is it common for and obviously i don't know this but is it common for journalists to you know Stay overnight and hang out at Rick Rubin's house? I mean, I think you got to, I mean, look, you got to do what the fuck it takes to get the goddamn interview. That's what I think. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think maybe other people would have been sent home. Right. But because... I had a relationship, I had a, re- look, I had a relationship previously, but like, I don't, I, you know, I don't think I have Kanye West's phone number in my phone. I don't think. 
Well, that's there's a difference in having the ability to contact someone yeah. versus having someone respond when you contact them. I think that I think it's I would hope that my first dealings with all of these people were positive mm-hmm. and not positive in the sense that there wasn't an interesting or potentially contentious parts of the conversation, but that it wasn't like, well, that was a waste of time. Right. And I think when you start that way, that carries you a long way in your career. And I, I think a thing that I've tried to do, especially here in this institution, is not say, I want to wait till so-and-so is super famous before we talk to them. I've said, I want to talk to them now, early, because I have a sense that this person's going somewhere. And I want to tell that story. You mean the list of SoundCloud rappers you've more or less shouted out? Yes, and also Taylor Swift. <laughs> yes, that's true. You know, so it's both Smoke Perp and Taylor Swift. <laughs> Can't wait till that collaboration happens. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think that, to me, is the important story to tell. And I think that, if it's done right, buys you a lot of credibility over time. So the, the other type of person who does... But there's no people who like been to my house. That's not like... like I, have, I don't hang out with well, people. Well, it's because houses. you're a journalist at the Times. No, but it's also because I don't want people to come to my goddamn house. <laughs> Are you saying if Kanye rolls up to your house and is like, John, great to see you. Let's go over to your house. Do you got a Super Nintendo? Do you got video games? Because I, I know, know I you don't. got that, that baker's rack where your TV's on. I do have that baker's rack, but I don't. I, what that contains right now is a DVD player, which I'm hoping to actually trade out for a DVD VHS player. Because oh. I want to start playing some of my old VHS tapes. Yep. Um, I had a conversation with a friend recently who is an adult roughly my age, maybe like two or three years younger than me. And he just, for the first time since he was a teenager, bought a place. I I don't speak video games. A PlayStation. And he was like, dude. He's like, I turned it on. Next thing I knew, eight hours had passed. Well, video games in 2018 are pretty epic. I bet. But for some reason, video games in 2018, that came out in the 1990s are also pretty epic <laughs> and so i worry that they're... my relationship my relationship to my attention deficit disorder is bad enough without having like a fucking playstation or a fucking super nintendo sitting in my house asking that's, me to play it that's probably smart but having a vhs is pretty crazy because there's my older brother is obsessed with vhs does he videos. know can he tell me a good used dvd vhs combo you probably can. Okay, I'll, well, I'll get, link will you get back to me? Yeah, Please, yeah. I appreciate that. But he, uh, it's weird because like I came over there and he's like, check this out. And he pulls out E.T. And I'm like, really? Like, do you want to watch E.T. right now? But also, like, <laughs> you can watch E.T. on a streaming service. Like, exactly. I, I want to watch things that I cannot watch but on he, streaming services. He also likes, well, he had weird, like, Fraggle Rock stuff, which oh, I'm well, sure so you, you know. can find on streaming. But Or, but maybe not. Maybe he had the rare shit. Maybe yeah, he had, like, I, the Japanese overdubs. <laughs> I don't know. But I digress here. We were talking about, about Kanye coming to my house and wanting to play PlayStation. I don't, I don't think that will ever happen. And like, I would never, here's, here's the key thing. I would hope in my heart that a person like that, in so much as he ever thinks about me, which is not very much, if at all, would understand that the nature of the relationship that we have is not that. Yeah. It's that I'm there to, like, I'm like the accountant. So that's know? basically the difference between you and an A&R guy, I would say. Yes. An A&R guy is always trying to be your friend, is always trying to be in your space. Yeah. I'm trying to be in your space as less as little as possible. Yeah. That's my goal. So you're polar opposite of say Chris Clancy. I mean, that's a manager. Yeah. Chris Clancy, by the way, was the manager, uh, product manager of Eminem at Sony and the manager of Odd Future right. for a very still, long time. And, and also the babysitter. 
Yes, <laughs> but like it's his job. You know, yeah. it's Clancy's job to be there constantly yeah. and put out any fires. I have the opposite job. Yeah. Number one, my main job is I'm a critic. So actually, I have to remain at a remove because if I interview you on album two, we have a good time and I write a nice story, and then album three comes along and it's trash, I have to say it's trash. You, well, don't, see, get, you don't get a pass just because we got along for three hours on a Tuesday on the album cycle for album two. And this brings me to my next point, because mm-hmm. what is heartbreaking, but also why I love your writing, is because you're never going to just say some BS because someone's sponsoring you or someone's going to get you into some party. And what's heartbreaking, truthfully, is mm-hmm. that is really the case these days with, I would say, definitely a lot of music stuff, but also, more importantly, which is, we'll talk to later, fashion. Ooh, which you clothes. <laughs> clothes. Oh, I'm talking about clothes. Christ. Seriously. Yeah. And I agree with you. Just from my limited to medium interactions with the fashion space, it is much, much harder to be overtly critical unless you are one of the top three fashion critics Yeah, uh, in that space than it is in my space. And I think, you know, and that, that's just something that, I don't know, it doesn't really happen anymore. And even, you know, I, we talked about a little bit of this off pod. Like, there's people whom I know that a lot of people in fashion love and don't love. Right. But when they publicly speak, they put their filters on. Mm-hmm. And that's just not you. Like, no, I, I, I listen to, the, to, especially on podcasts, which oh, yeah. I love, because you guys will go at it. Mm-hmm. And you, you usually will have, a, you know, someone or a guest that's on there that has a counter opinion yeah. for you. And it's fantastic. It's which and, is, and it's by design. Yeah, and you also don't only talk about rap music. No, no, not at all. I mean, like one of the reasons I can even have the job that I currently have is I don't. I care about almost every kind of music. Yeah. Um, and that start, like when I was, we we kind of skipped over this part, but like when I was freelancing for many years in the two thousands, I began to realize, number one, I can't write about only rap music for my entire life. I don't think even though I wrote about it for a lot of different places. But also, I naturally had a lot of affinity for other things that I wasn't writing about. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I should write about pop records. Maybe I should write about country. Like, maybe I should just see what that's like. And I started to do it. And then all of a sudden, I realized I was like, oh, I'm a full-service music critic because I write about all these other things. Right. But I, I kind of had to figure that out along. Like, it wasn't like a, that's what I'm going to do. I just sort of, like, scraped my way towards it. And yeah. here we are. And you're not liking bands, ironically. No, 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 no. I had a very, I had a very funny conversation and I, I don't, I do not do this in any name droppy way, especially after the part of the conversation we just had, but I did have a very funny conversation many years ago, uh, with Mark Ronson, who I have not talked to probably since this conversation, but okay. I did see him at a party and we were talking and he was like, I can never tell if you're just like ironically telling me to listen to Rascal Flats. <laughs> He's like, I'm just not sure. And I was like, no, Rascal Flatts is great. <laughs> <laughs> they got, that, that was in the good Rascal Flatts era. They're, the current Rascal Flatts is not very good. But the point is, it's not ironic. I'm not trying to like game the system. I have genuine aesthetic interests that mm-hmm. are broad spectrum, that are unusual, that are curious in particular, and I can make strong cases for them regardless of whether it's a cool artist or an uncool artist, an old artist or a young artist, a rap artist, a country artist, a pop artist, I can make those cases. And I think that's something that a lot of my peers, I think, don't do. They're either advancing an agenda, whether it's a pro or a counter agenda, um, 
or they're sort of like playing the role of like, I like all these things, but like, really, I just like this one thing. But like, I like all these things. Right. I, I try to like follow my passions and my passions like go in strange places. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that brings me to my, my other point mm-hmm. that I wanted to talk about is I think you're probably one of the most fascinating people to talk about the music business with. Mm-hmm. Because yes, you're a critic and yes, you came up, you know, in this other era where, you know, I would say music business had a ton of power. Yeah. And now, you know, it's like the difference between the NFL and the NBA where you got, now it's a player's league. Now I would argue that a lot of times the musicians yeah. control more of it's the a business good analogy. Yeah. Than, what's, than what's happening. Yeah. And, and as a result, the way that we and I approach stories is different. You used to have, like before my day, it was very loose. Mm-hmm. When I arrive in the late 90s into the early 2000s, it's like the peak of the PR era. It's like the Lizzie Grubman era where like everybody's super famous and everybody's like, I can't possibly talk to you. <laughs> and then that changes. At a certain point, that changes. And stars get so famous that they start to take a little bit more control back. We're actually in a place right now where stars are so famous that they maybe don't need to do press at all. Oh. That's an interesting change. Yeah. And like Taylor Swift. Yes, but even younger people. Because if you're a person, and this I have not encountered this yet. Okay. But I can see this being a hypothetical thing that could happen in the next 12 months. An artist slash Instagram influencer slash YouTube star slash whatever has two to five million followers for his or her songs slash videos slash whatever. Mm-hmm. But is maybe slightly problematic. In some TBD way. Sure. The New York Times knocks on the door and says, hey, we see what you're doing. We'd love to talk to you about it. And they're like, to their audience, should I talk to the New York Times? (laughs) Is that a thing that's right for me? I don't know. That seems pretty uncool. (laughs) And then they maybe won't talk to me. And I could see that happening. Again, it has not happened yet. I can see it going in that direction because they are in control of the direct relationship with their audience and they may not need, feel the need at that particular moment in time to grow or right. change or evolve. A problem that I occasionally have is I tend to approach people pretty early in their careers before the hype cycle is fully evolved. Yeah. So they may not, to them, the New York Times maybe would like the 20th interview they would do. After, yeah, so like, they may not even be that well media trained. <laughs> right. But the, you know what I'm saying? But they're not even re- conceptually, they're not even ready to do it. Um, and I think, like when I, when I did the SoundCloud rap story, I think I was the first person who ever interviewed Smoke Burp. I think. I'm pretty sure. Maybe the first, maybe the second, but I think I was the first. I would say I interviewed Lil Pump, but he was zanned out and totally sleeping. But yeah. like, you know, I, I think that's also sometimes a little bit disorienting for, for folks because they, they think oh, well, I'll talk to this website first or I'll like do this blog interview or this vlog or whatever and then like I'll grow into it and sometimes I want to talk to them really early and they're not totally ready, which is why I can see the direction that it's going is maybe in a year or two they might just be like, well, actually, fuck it. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I would say there's a, only a couple bands that I'll get into and that I, I'll, buy, I'll buy a Radiohead album no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I would argue- I'm so sorry. Yeah, I would argue a lot of Radiohead albums are bad. Yeah. But I'll buy it anyway because I love Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that's like kind of crazy to me is that I don't know if that type of artist exists anymore. Like, I'm okay with the fact that I only really like one and a half Drake albums. Mm-hmm. And every Drake album 
that he's done since is just not my not my speed. You like the first. I like, like the early. I like take care and part of nothing was the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Drake Drake cleaves pretty neatly into kind of like uh soft Drake and tough Drake. That's <laughs> true. Um and you know I like I think, Usher Drake. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that's a great Drake. That's like the Drake that I first fell in love with, you know? Yeah. Like that's like important Drake. Uh Tough Drake, I, I think, is, is less revolutionary, but weirdly equally important because historically, throne holders in hip hop have hewed to like very specific aesthetic frameworks and like topical frameworks. And Drake has some interesting variances from that mean that I think are notable. Although right. in a post Kanye and Pharrell universe, like obviously that was already kind of in motion. As far as like the center of hip hop being, uh, having the potential to be a different thing than it had been in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that Drake is the most important and widely accepted rap figure for the last five years is yeah, like not insignificant. And that's. Uh, and when I wrote, when I first wrote that in. I can't remember which piece it was. I think it was about nothing was the same where I sort of was talking about like him becoming the center of gravity and people yeah. were like, fuck that. That's not real. That's not going to happen. Not that he wasn't popular, but they were like, there's no fucking way that the whole genre is going to orient itself around Drake. Yeah. I was like, just what called just, it. Just you watch. <laughs> just you watch. I'm just an observer. It's like, I don't, I, I can't influence the thing. I'm not hanging I, out with them right now. No, but like, I can just, you know, you watch, you pay close enough attention, you see what's happening. Yeah. And that's like, I, I think that's why I don't want to and can't hang out. Like, I'm not interested in that because my skills are observational. Like, my skills are seeing things in a big picture way and hopefully understanding the kind of like, big picture seismology of the whole thing. I don't mm. want to get too close to anybody because it throws your fucking, it throws your sensors off. I love to travel and I think I'm getting it down to a science. I grab a few dope outfits, some running clothes, toiletries, and I'm out the door. What do I pack it in? My away carry on. I recently upgraded my flimsy duffel that gave me back pain and switched to a proper roller from away. It's made with a premium German polycarbonate that is super strong but ultra light. It's perfect for me because I'm a little hard on my stuff. And thanks to those four 360 degree wheels my suitcase is on, I can zoom past everyone in the terminal and get straight to my gate. But my favorite part of my carry-on, it's that built-in USB charger. I can stop walking around like a clown looking for power and charge my iPhone with my Away carry-on. It's got enough juice to charge my iPhone up to five times. Right now, Away is giving Blamo listeners $20 off a suitcase. Just visit awaytravel.com forward slash blamo and enter promo code blamo at checkout. So go to the new site, pick out a carry-on, and get moving. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash blamo. Back in the day, I would have, if it was an artist uh, that was selling CDs and mm -hmm. I was buying CDs, right? I would have bought all those Drake albums mm -hmm. and I would have listened to them like I did mm -hmm. and... You know, been like, okay, I like these. And they, I would just, he would have gotten the sale of that. And so my, my question is, do you think that because how everything has converted to streaming and how, you know, like I have friends who work in the industry who have literally told me how the streaming business has messed with them so much, they don't do a P&L on the band for like the first year. They right. sometimes have to stretch it out to three yeah. on the first album. Sure. And so would you say that the, you know, because of the streaming industry, 
is that these are like indie bands. Yeah. Is there media that people are just completely missing? Because I feel it's, it's all singles driven now. Well, I guess what I would contend is people were always missing that stuff. It's not like there was some magical golden time when like we all reveled in obscure indie punk bands. But to to counter, I could go back to maybe like maybe you I have this conversation with you and you're like, "Listen, man, that Drake album, it really is good. You have to think about this, this and this." And he was going through this in his life and da da, he met Skepta and I don't even like Skepta and blah blah crime. <laughs> and then I go back and I'm like, "Oh, that was really good." And but I but I own it. You know, and so now I feel like if I go and I discover that, like, I don't think, I don't see, I mean, Drake obviously is not the best example, right. but he's not going to get that financial thing from me. Not that I'm going to make or break a band. Well, the economics have changed, like, look, exactly. the economics have changed across the board. Yeah. And we actually did a podcast maybe three or four weeks ago about streaming and indie rock bands, especially. Um, I think... Number one, Bandcamp has really filled some of that gap as far as a revenue gap. Bandcamp is useful for bands in that space. Yeah. I think what I would say is those bands were never thriving. It's just the bad guys are different bad guys now. Yeah. Like, even when MTV had like 120, 120 minutes, it's not like super obscure bands were thriving. Yeah. Maybe they got played every now and again. Maybe some soundtrack put them... Maybe they caught like ten thousand dollar check for some being on some random soundtrack, but there was not a systematic, uh, there was not a system built to support those bands in an ongoing way. Mm-hmm. And I agree, the current systems are not useful for bands of that of that size. Yeah, and they will remain not useful for bands of that size. Well, especially when you get into you know publishing deals and three sixty deals, 100%. which is what almost every band now. Real quick, everyone. A 360 deal is when the label takes a cut from every part of the, yeah merchandise, publishing. which is pretty standard now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Rihanna had a 360 deal when she was signed. It was, but it was not standard at that time. Yes, that's true. Like it's really in the last early. like five years, it's where yeah. it's become the norm, and a lot of people resisted it. And I think there are still some people who have enough clout at the time of their signing to resi- to to be able to keep it at bay. But I think if you're basically going to a record label now and saying I need your money for studio time, development, A&R connections, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas that trade-off in 1995 was like, fine, and then we just owned seven albums. Yeah, it was basically now, everyone being okay with George Lucas having merch rights. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's what it was in 1995, and now it's like, fine, we own you for seven albums, and also, like, if you ever sell a t-shirt, we get $6. Yeah. Which is obviously a great look for the label and a terrible look for a band. Yeah. So, no, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think the system is built to support those bands, but I think I sometimes want to reject the narrative that there ever was a system that was built to support those bands. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, other, other times, and I, I've talked about this on other pods too, where like for me, I argue, I would argue that the seventies is the greatest decade in music mm-hmm. for myself mm-hmm. because it was the perfect time where they had 16 track recording. That was basically it. Mm-hmm. So dark side of the moon was made on 16 tracks. Mm-hmm. All right. That's one of, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful, incredible albums ever, and it sounds insane. Never gone through it the whole time. Really? <laughs> That's so John Caramonica. I mean, I've not, <laughs> I've tried, I've tried. It's just not for me. It's I don't know if you. It's a passive listen, but it is a beautiful listen. I don't. I don't doubt. I believe the hype, but I don't need to to engage with it. That's fair. Like I've listened to enough of it to get it. Yeah, but I've never been like, "Yo, I'm gonna throw that on right now." <laughs> That's true. 
So, but for me, the 70s was perfect because also only the most talented bands were recorded. So you think. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was recorded that people slept on, Mm -hmm. but it was still these like super talented bands that recorded. Mm -hmm. And then, like, if you weren't good, you couldn't record versus now. But th- that's the Are thing. you telling me there's no bad bands in the 70s? Well, there's got to be bad bands in the 70s. I don't know. I'm, I'm, because if they were, I mean, yeah, there's bad music. Like from the America. 70s. America was not a good band. Do you know what's really funny? Is my dad. That's your favorite band? No, but my dad and Dan Peake of America were like good buddies. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy's dad. It's okay. And also Dan Peake. But America. here's the thing America was a big deal. There, Amer- like people would, you know, everything had to be named to H. It yeah. was also George Martin's first band that he produced after the Beatles. You know who loves America? Pharrell. Really? One of the first times I interviewed Pharrell, he just fucking talked to me forever about America. Probably because he just heard Sister Golden Hair and lost his mind. But I literally, at that point, had never heard America. What? At that point. And I was just like, cool, that sounds great. And then I went home and listened to it, and I was like, is this a joke? Am I being trolled? This well, is which album did you listen to? Dog, fuck knows. It was like 2000. 2000- <laughs> It was like 2003. I don't know, man. Whichever one I could order on Amazon.com at the time. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Okay, I, I don't know, man. There, there's some good stuff. I'm going to contest. Do you like I, Jim Croce? Um, Did you like Jim Croce? He's no longer with us. Yeah, I mean, like, no, he never came to my house. Uh, well, no one came to your house. Damn right. <laughs> Neither Kanye West nor Jim Croce came to my house. Um, I have heard Jim Croce records that I liked. But I'd be lying if I told you that I was informed enough about Jim Croce to be like, yo, here's like his top 10 bangers. Yeah. So. Well, I would. The tough thing is there wasn't much bangers of Jim Croce, period. But those are the bangers. That's actually. <laughs> That's I thought you were going to say the tough thing would be like that every song is a banger. No. No way. A knock. A slap. But. Email me at popcast.nytimes.com with your top 10 Jim Croce slaps. Dude, I'll I'll crush you with some 1970s tunes. We'll I'll I'll go down. We'll go down. We'll talk about Rockin' Horse, which is like this basically Beatles knockoff band that was a thousand times better than the Beatles. That supposedly may or may not have influenced John Lennon and Paul McCartney at the time. Great. Let's, yeah, I want in. That's want serious. In. Great. Um. Well, so that's fine. You definitely crushed my 70s argument by. by I didn't me. crush it. No, I just sort fair. of I elided it. Yeah, I elided like. Elision is a beautiful tool if you use it correctly. <laughs> I don't want it, but this is the thing. Like one of the great things about having been a critic for a very long time is I'm confident in what I know, mm-hmm. but I'm also confident in what I don't know. And I never pretend to know something that I don't know. And so if there's a thing that I'm confronted with, I'm just not the expert on or not authoritative enough on. There's no there's no shame in being like. I don't know about that. But you also ask the right questions. There's a big difference. I try to. Yeah, I try to. And I'll study up. Like, I take it seriously. Like, if I'm forced to be an authority on something, I'll study up. Like, I just did a thing for the Olympics that was like a primer, a K-pop primer. And like, which was amazing. (laughs) But I'm pretty good on K-pop of, say, the late 2000s into the 2010s. Like, I, I pay close enough attention. I wouldn't say I pay day in day out attention but like i can identify the important movements but like 90s stuff i don't know anything about but like i spent a whole goddamn day like watching videos and well the politics of k-pop is what gets me well (laughs) it's a whole separate podcast yeah and then once the bts stands find your twitter handle yeah that's true r.i.p to your mentions yeah um but like i take it seriously enough that like I'll study and I, cause I, I would never, I would never fake authority. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I will put in the extra labor to try to approximate something like authority rather than just fuck it up. Yeah. Some people may still think I fuck it up, but at least I tried to fuck it up on my terms. Not on any other terms. <laughs> well, here, let's jump to clothes real clothes! quick. Clothes! So, oh one God, of the... Let's talk about clothes. I met you a couple times, but I remember yes. one of the times um, I worked at a shop called The Armory. Shouts to The Armory. And you came by because you were doing the New York Times Critical Shop. I was. And you guys knew who I was, or you didn't know who I was? I knew who you were. But it, I had to tell everyone else who you who You, you did. Were. Okay, because I didn't... I, I, I was like, guys, John Caramon... I'll, I'll tell you what I said. This please, is no, this is good. This is good for me. I this said, is good John Caramon is going to come me. through here. He is not your ordinary shopper. Don't try to give him free stuff. Yeah. Do not try to buy this interview. Mm-hmm. Just be a nice, genuine person, and hopefully what we have here is going to speak for itself. That's, That's exactly what I said. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Then the reason why I said that is because in the industry, if you're going to come, you're going to do an interview, not you, right. but like for lack of the royal we, right? If yeah. you're going to come, you're going to get free stuff. You're going to get sick outfits, mm-hmm. mentions, all that other stuff. But we would like for you to take an Instagram in the shop and tag us with this and use this hashtag. Right. And that's not you. No, I mean, the whole premise of that column is that it's anonymous. Yeah. Even though, obviously, people can look it up. You know, it's supposed to be almost like the restaurant critic. Yeah. It's not like my normal job. My normal job, like, people are supposed to know, oh, you're the New York Times guy, like, and you're here. Like, that's... But the critical shopper column is, um, by design, it's meant to be anonymous. In the sense that I don't... Like, you know your store is getting shopped because the photo department calls yeah and says hey we'd like to take photos in the store for uh, for the shopping page i don't even know if actually i don't even know if they say they didn't say it was for the critical shop right. like they, we'd love to take photos of the store and i was right. like dude we're gonna get a critical shop yeah. <laughs> so you someone like you who's like a student enough and like a reads up like yeah. you would know what that is but a lot of stores actually you'd be surprised like would not know what that meant so but there's never a like i'm coming i never call first i just go in and try to experience it just like any old any old asshole goes in and gets either treated well or treated poorly. Yeah. And I have been both treated well and treated poorly at various stores. Really? Yeah. And I think that's useful because if I, you know, if I who like a reasonably thoughtful, vaguely aware person, like can go into a store mm-hmm. and like get treated poorly, even though I'm like a decent customer and like, I'm not like a goober. I'm not just like, well, this is crazy. These fabrics are crazy. Yeah. You know? You're not there like looking at price tags and being like, no, I never, no, yeah. no. I mean, you, you, I try to shop the store the way I imagine the kind of like um, platonic ideal customer dr- shops the store. Yeah. Which is not to say I'm so rich that I can buy everything, but it's I try to take the store and the clothes at their own level. I try to accept it. Mm-hmm. And I may like it or not like it, but I accept it on its level rather than being like this level is invalid. Because who am I to say the level's invalid? That's not fair. But you'd be surprised how many people had no idea their store was getting shopped until the piece came out. I mean, and you've, you've written some I've very doing- favorable pieces, and you've also written, I guess, would be some very honest pieces, where yeah. it's like, yeah, of course, of course he said that about that store. Have you ever been in there? Of course. Yeah. And that's the important thing. It's one of the things I always liked about the column, because the column predates me. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, that's true. You did not start the column. No, no. Yeah. So uh, the col- I've been doing it, fuck, man, eight years? Long time. Long time. Um, and... Prior to me, there were two, it's always a man and a woman. So prior to me, the woman was Cynthia Wilson, and the man was Mike Albo. And prior to Mike Albo, it was Horacio Silva. And 
fuck, I'm blanking who it was before Sindra. I'm gonna be embarrassed, but like I don't remember off the top of my head. I, it's all I, right. I can I can visualize it, and I can even visualize some of the writing, but I can't think of the name. Fuck. Anyway, uh, I didn't. The column did not originate with me, but I always was a fan of it because I was like, oh, I like not in like a dumb way. Like I like to shop. Like I motherfucking like to shop. Like that's my thing. Like in any relationship that I've ever <laughs> been in, I'm the shopper. Like not my girlfriend. I am the shopper in the relationship. Yeah, always. And so it was sort of like a running joke, like, oh, if only I could do that column, like, wouldn't that be super LOL? And then one day, the column was available, and, I sent, and I sent an email, and like, here we are. Yeah. Um, so I take shopping very seriously, and I'm just grateful to have, like, an outlet to share these very urgent opinions I have. Well, it was funny, because I remember after you did the piece on the Armory, someone Shop was like... Armory, a very beautiful store. That remains a very beautiful store. Thanks. Um, well, I don't work there anymore. I so know. I don't care. But, but still, but still, yeah. I remember after it, someone was like, "Hey, someone," because you mentioned a turtleneck. Yes, which you did not buy. I did not. But you it's did great. buy. But mm-hmm. you did buy a piece, and someone was like, "Someone should give it to him for free." And Thanks. and this is this is where I was like, "Man, this guy's a badass." Because I think I because I had your email address, oh, and so I emailed you, I and I was like, right. "Hey, uh, they would like to give this to you." Right, right. And I said and no. You, yeah, you said yeah. no, and I was like. He's a G. Yeah. Because, again, if you're in the fashion industry, you just take it. Yeah. And, you know, but here's the thing. You don't owe anyone anything. You, can can I tell you something super embarrassing? It's actually embarrassing it. on two levels. Okay. Okay. So I've, for many months, have been wanting a pair of triple S's. Balenciaga triple S's. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar. The $850 yeah. shoe. Which is now made in China, not in Italy. Let, let, we can have a whole fucking separate conversation about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I've wanted a pair and I have no one to call. Like I can't, I can't flex. I can't ask for favors. Like I, I literally, I'm like looking on grailed. I'm looking on stock X. I'm trying to find a pair in the oh right color. God. It's so hard because you can't trust to know whether it's authentic or fake. It's a, you know, and I don't want to spend a thousand dollars on that's going to end up being not real. Um, and I had to just wait like every other schlub. Just buy these. Yeah. Look at that. Kirkland signature dog. Yo, this is, um, so this is like a spring training, like Port St. Lucie spring training, 1996. That's Limited right. edition. Yeah. Yeah. Only available in the, uh, the Foot Locker in Port St. Lucie for like one month. Yeah, in that's March right. In March 1996. Extremely rare. <laughs> so I just had to wait, like every other schlub, set tweet notifications, like just all this absurd shit. And then finally I ended up getting a pair like two days ago. And I don't even feel that gratified because it's not even the pair I originally wanted. I wanted the one... With green and yellow, the the gray, green and yellow, the beige, green, yellow, and yeah. I got an all black. But that's a, like if you were in fashion, if that was your job to be in fashion to deal with fashion people, I'm sure people can make calls and say, "Hey, can you set aside a pair? Like, I'll pay for them. Like, can you set aside a pair?" I'm literally so on the outside, I wouldn't even know who to call to even ask that question to if I was allowed to ask that question, which I'm not. That's the most mind-boggling thing, too, because the whole point I feel that a lot of people get into fashion is so they can get yes. discounts or get yes, shit. Yes, that's free. the whole point. And I, I can't <laughs> I can't take any of it. I can't get any of it. I've had to return things that people have mailed me unsolicited. Oh, wow. Like, you just sent, like, I think the gift limit here is $25. So, like, if you get, like, a promo t-shirt from a, from a rapper, sure. that's fine. Yeah. But, like, I've had people send me, like, things that are two, three, four, five hundred dollars $500, mail it right back. Yeah. I just like to dress, but that's, but it's also good because 
I don't ever want to, in the same way that I don't want to feel beholden in music, I don't want to feel beholden anywhere. Yeah. So I never want to feel like, oh, this fashion person sent me whatever, and now I've got to be nice to their store, or I've yeah. got to be nice to their collection or something. Well, and it's a messed up, I mean, so I worked as a stylist for a little bit. Yes. And one of the things that happened while I was trying to do this is I had different clients who were different sizes and and different heights, weights, yeah. blah, 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 right? I had people who, would, who said to me, okay, cool, I'll hook you up with this guy for this red carpet, but you, um, who, is, who is difficult to dress. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, but I need you to dress this person for this. The whole industry itself has this seedy Jeez. underbelly of wheeling and dealing and, you know, trading and like, oh, you know, I can, I was like, there was a piece coming out. I was like, hey, I'd love to get this. And like, we'll give it to you for free, but we would also love for, we'll give you another one, but it has to go on this actor. And I was like, and I, I remember at the time, I was like, yeah, I could probably make that happen. And I remember, I'm going to, I'll be honest yeah. with you, full confession on, on yeah, the pod. Yeah, this is what we do. I said, okay. And I took it and I gave it to the client. So I got one for myself. Yeah, sure. And then I gave it to the client and <laughs> totally backfired because he goes, well, I'm not going to wear that. You already have one. <laughs> <laughs> Shouts to that client. Yeah, I'm dead serious. Oh, that's hella funny. Yeah. Oh, that's super funny. <laughs> so it completely backfired. Oh, that's super funny. And I remember the PR person emailed me a few times. We were like, hey, uh, this, you know, this uh, campaign is coming out. Like, right. we haven't seen so him wear. Right. And the, I was like, oh, right. Well, it, the size didn't fit. And they're like, oh, um, okay. Well, they're like, and I just, I ended up having someone was like, he didn't like it. And they're like, well, we gave this, and I got ripped. Oh. So. Favors are a motherfucker. That's also why I'm not a stylist anymore. (laughs) I mean, that seems like kind of thankless work. It is. You can make a beautiful moment, but it does seem like thankless work. I'll be honest. I lost thousands of dollars, and Apatow Productions still owes me money. Really? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't say that. Have you been invoicing them like once a month? (laughs) No. You should do, okay, you should do something that a a friend of mine, not a former friend, a current friend, uh, did to a former freelance uh, from magazine that he had freelanced for. Right. Which is he had an invoice, faxed it to the office. This is, of course, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Faxed it to the office of whatever the publication was. I can't remember what it was. And set it to send every minute overnight so that when they arrived in the morning oh my the God. entire fax roll was nothing but invoices from this one article and he got paid <laughs> so you should try doing that yeah just, yeah just a tip i mean yeah i lost thousands of dollars doing it it was uh but i got i got a bunch of great stories right but great stories good cl- i'm sure you have some good clothes i did get some, i did get some dope threads um yeah i don't <laughs> like the idea i don't I don't want to owe anyone anything. Yeah. And being a, being a crit, I'm like well suited, I think, to being a critic because I never wanted, I was a critic before I had this job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I lucked out that I found a job that was suited to my temperament. Like I was already a person that would like tell you my opinion and like kind of not care if it, your client was offended by it. Like that's not, I've never been any other way so i just i'm very fortunate to have a job that kind of like demands that yeah um and obviously in music it's different than in fashion i think fashion was like much more uh concerned with image and uh is protective of 
kind of the narrative that something is important and is much more resistant to anyone kind of like poking holes in it. Right. But um, I think having the shopping column, which is very different from being a fashion critic, like it's lucky. It's like adjacent to fashion. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm reviewing the store. So like sometimes I'm reviewing the clothes. Sometimes I'm reviewing the mood and the, but, and the, the transactional experience. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I'm reviewing the actual like shopping experience. Right. Um, and so it's adjacent to fashion. So I can have opinions about fashion and they're important and they're useful in the context of this column, but I'm not the fashion critic. I don't have to do what Vanessa Friedman does. I don't have to, you know, but I also think Vanessa Friedman, I think when she doesn't like something, she just says she doesn't like something. But I think you have to be Vanessa, Robin, Kathy, maybe maybe Tim. I mean, I don't know. Like you have to be one of those people to really just like be like, this is trash. I mean, I would argue that like how you write and how you communicate, which is why you're one of my favorite writers, is you're definitely a bit of an evangelizer too. Like you won't just say, because I would say a lot of times in fashion, people will say, fashion or music mm-hmm. this is fantastic why it's just so good and you'll connect the dots i try to yeah i think it's important because i think it's easy i don't know i think every person that we know who's like artistically inclined or creatively inclined has a pretty good gut mm-hmm. people are like i like that that speaks to me like they understand it on a primal level and if that was all it took to do the job, I wouldn't have this job. Because a lot of people can say, that's good. That's bad. A lot of people can do that. The it's important true. thing is narrativizing. The important thing is drawing the arc. Talking about history. Talking about broader social and political context. That's the story. So it's saying, here's something that's important, and then I'm going to explain to you why. And I'm going to take you on this journey. That's the job. That's what a lot of people, I think, either can't or don't want to or are not that interested in doing. But that happens to be the thing that I'm very interested in doing. Well, and it's also because it's very easy to just say it's good or bad, especially in an era now where right. the, the consumption of media has drastically increased, but the quality and the, the size of the media that people are consuming is drastically decreased. And I'm not, look, I'm not, <laughs> imu- like, I'm not immune to seeing a thing on Instagram and being like, that's good, and I don't want to think about why it's good. Mm-hmm. I just know it's good. I'm not immune to that. Well, you're, but you're not writing an article about it. No. There's a difference. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. I'm just shopping based on, <laughs> like, I'm just like <laughs> ruining my credit based on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, respect, I respect that level of like intuitive taste. Like mm-hmm. that, I, I, I understand that like being a critic is not the only way to to express a taste palette. I think there are like myriad ways to express a taste palette. This just happens to be like a job that like lines up pretty well with how I naturally express my taste, which is through storytelling and right. through kind of like argument and like convincing. Yeah. So um, we're starting to wrap up a little bit, but mm-hmm. one of the stuff I want to ask, uh, well, one of the last things, where, what is the end goal for you? Uh, I mean, obviously... The, the great part is what you write about is never going to end. Getting another pair of triple <laughs> <laughs> Having 10 pair of triple <laughs> But uh, do, you, do you see yourself ever going in, in, ter- in forms of, you know, critic mm-hmm. criticism? Would you ever go to other mediums? Um, do, you, do you see yourself ever going to film? I mean, what, I'm just curious. And I don't mean criticizing. I mean, just like, where, what's John Caramonica five years from now? Ten years from now? 
I think the existential crisis that I would hope any person who traffics in what is effectively youth culture mm-hmm. has is at like at what point am I not either interested in or welcome in that space? I I sort of um like I like Drake a lot. But I don't know if I want to write about Drake when he's 40 and I'm 50. Or okay. he's 50 and I'm 60. Sure. I don't know. I may feel differently when I reach that time in my life. I'm always attracted to the generation of new thought. The people who are operating on the fringes. Uh, the people who are challenging orthodoxies. That's what I'm naturally inclined towards. But that's easy to be like that when you're in your 20s or in your 30s and can go out five nights a week and just see and touch a bunch of culture. At a certain point, you know, like, I could be like Carlo McCormick, just, like, out in the streets, David Hershkowitz. You know, like, I can be one of these sort of, like, lifetime downtown New York guys. Mm -hmm. And maybe I will be. I I don't know. But my instinct is at some point, I'll write books or I'll do a documentary or I'll move in that direction. Right. Because I think for my writing, like, in order to really write the stories, I think I have to dial back on the... I'm 100% in the streets, you know, ground level. I think it's hard to do both of those at the same time. Yeah. So I think in order to like, a thing that I often say is that criticism is art. I know it's about other art, but it's an art form unto itself. And I think in order for me to like be the best at this art form, I will have to like allow more of the focus to go on like my own writing and my own projects as opposed to, like, constantly worrying about, oh, like, some kid in Bushwick, like, mashed up this and this with this aesthetic, and, like, I've got to write about it tomorrow. Right. Because there's an endless supply of that. I can do that every day for the next 40 years until I drop dead. And here's the thing. I would also argue that the your your communication style and how, how you communicate your perspective and view, maybe it would be better served on the largest media, you know, on... Uh, motion picture, it might you know, be or documentaries, and that's what I, yeah. I think. That's what well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like in my off hours, yeah, is what can I use this energy for? But I also like I look around this building, right? I look at Guy Trebay, yeah, and I'm like, if I grew up to be Guy Trebay, that'd be fine. You know what I mean? That's true. That'd be okay. Yeah, I wouldn't be mad at that. Um, there are there are numerous colleagues who have been here doing work that I care about or am adjacent to who are in their 50s and 60s who are still badasses. We saw Ruth LaFerla coming in the elevator. Yeah. You know, that's a bad, that's a bad girl. Like, yeah. Ruth's the real. She's legit. That's the real deal right there. So, like, if I'm just Ruth LaFerla in 10 years or 20 years, like, that's also probably fine. Um, John Prowlis, totally fine. Um, but I have to figure out, for me if that's where I want my energy to go towards. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's an open question. I could probably do both at the same time. Like you ben, could. Ben Ratliff, who is my former colleague who doesn't work here anymore, but he wrote a book while he was a critic here. Uh, Jim Bonawazic, who's our TV critic, he's writing a book right now while he's Tony Scott writing, yeah. wrote a book. Wesley Morris writing a book. Like it's not unheard of to do both at the same time. So the question just becomes like, am I a good enough manager of my own time to actually like execute at that level? So that's what I'm trying to figure out. I think that's like my 2018 conundrum. 
Yeah. So if we revisit this in 12 months, hopefully I'll have a better answer. But can we talk about my shoes before I'd we go? I'd love to talk about your shoes. Okay. So in 2000, 1999 or 2000. Are they proud of sport? Yeah. That's <laughs> so good. So in 1999 or 2000, I had moved back from, I went to grad my grad school PhD was in London that I dropped out of. Yeah. So I moved back. I'd gotten a job. So I had a little money for the first time. Like yeah. An actual, like an income. And our office was in Midtown somewhere, something somewhere terrible, you know, like 53rd and 6th or something, like something ridiculous. Yeah. And on a lunch break, I like wandered over to Fifth Avenue and I like wandered into the Prada store and they saw, I saw these boots and it was the boots that I'm wearing right now, but in like a military green, right. like an olive-ish military green. And I was like, those are incredible. And they were so expensive, at least for me at the time. Sure. And I was just like, those are amazing. And I dressed like a, I dressed like a horrible bum. Like I, my jeans were so baggy and so tattered. And they were looking at me like I was nuts. And I was like, I tried them on. And I looked and like my pants were like probably twice as wide as the pants I'm wearing right now. And I tried them on. And I was like, I'm going to buy these. And I wore them every day and I looked insane. And then my mom, God bless her for, for the Christmas or my birthday or something like found the same boots in black and got them for me, which was very thoughtful. Although at the time I was like, nah, the green ones are better. Like I, barely <laughs> wore them. um, and then I, I wore them until it was like not tenable to wear anymore. The green pair, actually the leather has split. The sole has the, like, this is an air bubble. Basically it's popped. Like it's, I wore it till it was not tenable and like shoved them in closets. And like, as I've moved throughout New York, they've just like been in various boxes and closets. Right. And I've been looking at them a lot over the last six months, and I was like, oh, right, like, Prada's coming back, like, a little bit. Yeah. And also the silhouettes coming back. And I was like, but then I couldn't quite place the thing that I liked about them 100%. And recently, Nike put out a boot called the Gator Boot, G-A-I-T-E-R. Yeah, Jun Takahashi made it. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's ripping this off. Um, the sole shape. The sole shape for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big, the big thing with the gator boot is it is has the a zip. zipper. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, strictly but, in the large picture of the yes. silhouette and the shape and the kind of like rhythm of the sole. And so Dude, I tried the red lines, man. So yeah. I tried the gator boot on. The zipper broke because, Ooh. and apparently it's a problem. You want to let your man know. <laughs> it's a problem. Like Kith broke went to the nike store i went to nike lab they were like two of them have broken wait like while trying it on it's not yeah. like oh i bought it and i took it home and wore it for no a while trying it on that's because the, uh, the um what would this be called around the ankle like is there a name for this part of the shoe oh i don't know whatever that part sure. it's too narrow so, oh. the, so when the zip comes japanese shoe design that's not surprise june takahashi so tiny flat feet is so very yeah at him drop him at <laughs> let him know so I didn't buy those boots. This was like two or three weeks ago that I was trying those on. And I was like, these fucking Prada. I'm just going to go dig the Pradas out of my closet. And I like went in the back of my closet and I had both pair. I pulled them out. I, I can't like, believe you still have. I mean, because I saw you wearing them. And I was like, man, I was like, John, he's always on the new. You're no, always but on this the is, new. But here's the thing. I, um, a lot of the stuff that I bought when I started buying expensive clothes like, which is probably, like, 90, like, genuinely expensive clothes. Not, like, yeah. Tommy Hilfiger in 1994, which, for me, was expensive. But, I mean, like, actual fashion. So, 97, 98, 99. Like when I went to London, and I went to, like, Selfridges for the first time. And okay. I was like, oh, it's on. Like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of that stuff, 
I have no idea where it is. I either got rid of it, I sold it. Like, I have, like, weird Helmet Lang shirts from, like, 1999. I have no idea where they are. You can do a grailed archive sale? I mean, there is. There's wild... I have, like, a Mark McNary thing from before... I, when it was, like, McNary and Brothers. Yeah, or McNary, McNary Brothers. Yeah, I have yeah. one of those. Like, I have a lot of weird shit from, like, 97 to 2000. Like, some strange Japanese denim that I got in Brighton. Like, okay. I was just buying a bunch of weird shit because it was my first exposure to, like, basically non-hip-hop fashion. Right. And I was like, I'm going to buy the most hip-hop version of non-hip-hop fashion, which is, I think, a path that a lot of current rap fashion kids took. It's basically, like, the ASAP Rocky path. Yeah. Although he's, like, much better at it and, like, has a lot more money than I do. But it's basically the same pattern. Um, but all that other, I don't know where most of those clothes are. Like, there's, like, a really great Helmet Lang shirt that I'm really angry I don't know. Also, I was probably, like, your size at the time, and I don't think it would fit anymore. <laughs> R.I.P. to the old mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so we talked about my shoes. We talked about your shoes. Is there anything else we should talk about? I don't know. What are you know. liking right now? What am I like? Yeah, like what? Oh, what been, speaks it's been a while to you? People turn the no, I want to know what speaks to you in the um, current climate. I, I okay. I seriously think that because fashion is way too crazy and way too up in the air right now, mm-hmm. a lot of people. And when I mean a lot of people, I mean the, a lot of the people who are buying. So not menswear riders who are getting stuff for free. Um, are, we love you though. <laughs> yeah, we love you. We love you. Who are going to throw their arms up and more or less go back to really kind of like somewhat conservative air quote things here, mm-hmm. and it'll be like denim. I think people. I I honestly think like like selvage denim and all that stuff is going to come back in the sense of like the everyman. Yeah, sure. Um, you and, think suits are coming back? No, never. I do not. Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think. No, not like the way it was with like. When it was hype. Right. Not like mid There's still people who want to buy suits, but it's just like, you know, there's a lot of people that want Navy suits, but I think guys are going to go more into just like nice. Like I've had people tell me before, where would you get like nice jeans? Yeah. And I get, and I'm just like, wait, what? Like I'll get emails all the time from people saying like, oh, like I'm going to do my first kit. What do I get? And I'm always like, go find your favorite vintage shirt or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Don't pay that much for it and get a good pair of jeans that you can wear every day. Yeah. Cause that's, that's real. I mean, and the other thing is when you look at all the editors and you look at, you know, like shout out like Lawrence, like I know like he's, he wears those jeans all the time mm-hmm. cause it's easy and it's simple. And then you can build your kit around everything else. I wear the same jeans every day. Yeah. Every single day. So what are you, who makes your jeans? Uh, these are actually newer jeans. These are Orslo, but okay. I usually do yeah. Levi's five ones or slow. And then I have a couple of Viz jeans, but I don't wear them that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I, I went nuts. Like I had the, a bunch of the Atelier and repair denim, yeah, sure. which I loved. Mm-hmm. But when you buy jeans that are already like fixed up and have patches and stuff in them, it's pretty easy for those patches to either a fall off or need to get repaired again. And also there's something dishonest because I like, obviously everybody likes the way their jeans fit when they're broken into their specifications. Yeah. And then if you break in an already broken in pair of jeans, by your specifications, but not by the specifications that it was originally broken in. Yeah. It'll just look weird. It's true. It's like, why is the patch here, but the worn out section is here? <laughs> my knee is actually up here, yeah, but this patch is on it my doesn't, calf. It doesn't, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a concept I don't really ride for. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would say like, that's probably the stuff that I mess with the most would be, I mean. So you think people are going to be going to, uh, what's that store in? So blue and green? Blue and green? Blue and green. I don't know, because that's still, like, new, new. Like, the people that are going to blue and green right now are trying to buy capital, because he's the guy who does the wildest capital buy in the United yes. States. 
they had an amazing shirt with like weird embroidered cats on it a couple years ago, but like only in a medium, of course. And yeah. I was just like, come on. You know man. who has that shirt? Who? John Mayer. <laughs> I'm serious. Dead serious. He has that shirt. I can at show me, you John. Where he Yo, at me, John Mayer. Yeah. At me. But you can get that cat shirt. They reissued it for this fall. That's Did serious. they? Yeah. Like in the, I mean, 100%. This most recent fall this or the most, coming for fall? For fall 17, no. which they still have in Japan. Are you serious? 100%. The cat shirt. My size, though, is the problem. You're five. I'm de- oh, I'm like probably like a seven. If no, we're being honest. no, no, I'm a five. In capital, I'm a five. Yeah. They, if wow, oh, we might have to go googling after. I'm dead serious. I'll, I'll show you. Oh, yeah. I would love to. Okay, um, good. That gotta, catcher was. I use Japanese proxies a ton. I've only just started. Well, the first proxy I ever used was to get the fake Yeezy Balenciagas. <laughs> That was the first time I've ever used a proxy. Oh, man. I use Japanese proxies. I've been doing that for okay. years. Okay. I figured, yeah. Okay. You, you can teach me. It's how you can buy Visbam at an affordable price. Okay. Well, I have, since I have a lot to learn from yeah. you. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, I, I'll, I would like to see about a Capital Five cat shirt. They're, I would like to they're see, fire. I would like to see about that. What else you got? That's it? I think so. Uh, this was good. <laughs> this was really good. Thank, All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Good talking. You've been listening to Blamo. Special thanks to my guests, John Caramonica and the New York Times for hosting us. Check the show notes for links to some of my favorite pieces from John and be sure to subscribe and download the New York Times podcast for more goodness. Blamo's theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for your emails. People always ask, how do I help the show? Well, leave a review on iTunes. It helps let others know and discover it. Feel free to get in touch or give me a shout on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks. We'll see you soon.